Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijar Nathan. And with us today is Micah Zevin, uh, co-host. Welcome, Micah. Hey. Hey, VJ. Hey, hey. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. So uh, today we have a special guest, Francisco Delgado. He is a writer and teacher based out of Queens. He works as an assistant professor of English in the Bar of Manhattan Community College, CUNY, where he teaches courses on writing and literature. His research focuses on Native American indigenous literatures and can be found in memory, um, studies, transmotion, transmo, trans and teaching American literature, uh, theory and practice. Um, some of his creative work has been published in um, Lemon Jerry, uh, Lemon, Lemon Gary, uh, Lemon, I keep uh, Wigleaf, Queensbound, and Glamour Train. His chapbook of flash fiction, Adolescent Second Hand, was published by Honda Cycle Press in 2018. He's a proud Chimero, and uh, through his maternal grandmother, a member of the Tonawanda Band of Seneca. Mm -hmm. Welcome, Francisco. Thank you so much, Jay. Thank you for having me. Thank you, thank you. So, um, why don't we start the conversation off a little bit about Thanksgiving and, uh, you know, just the holiday just passed and a lot of people have a lot of discussion around that. So it'll be interesting to see how Native American literature or writings has um, treated the holiday and how it's being processed by Native American communities, indigenous communities. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, so again, thank you, BJ. Thank you, Micah, for having me. Um, I'm coming to you from Forest Hills, Lenape land, uh, in my son. <laughs> um, so yeah, given that question, I feel like we should acknowledge who's a land. Of course, yeah. We are all on, right? Um, so yeah, it's a very contested and ongoing discussion. You know, what role um, does Thanksgiving play? What role should indigenous communities play in the um, celebrations, the proliferation of this holiday? Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on on Twitter. I don't know if anyone was following uh, that, but uh, just these conversations that need to happen, right? And sometimes they do, uh, but more often they don't just because we want to get through the holidays. Uh, but in the context of Native American literature, there have been some works produced that focus exclusively on the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, American Indian Community House, which is an organization in downtown Manhattan, uh, does this thing called Theater Thursdays. And they uh, recently have uh, put on their Facebook live feed uh, a couple of these plays, um, which were all excellent and all kind of deal with communities, not just indigenous communities, but non-indigenous communities kind of grappling with this history and this legacy of genocide, essentially, and of settler colonialism, right? Um, you know, how do you celebrate a founding or foundational holiday um, that in you know, not so discreetly entails the, you know, removal or murdering of, you know, your ancestors, your people, right? So uh, the Thanksgiving holiday as it's perceived and promoted in mainstream American cultures is obviously this very contentious idea and thing. Um, but there are, uh, you know, Thanksgiving addresses uh, that are done by individual nations. So um, as you uh, put it in my uh, introduction, my, uh, you know, in when you introduced me, VJ, um, I am Tanawanda Band of Seneca through my maternal grandmother. Um, the Seneca are the indigenous people of Western New York, um, Iroquois, um, you know, they go by a few different names. Iroquois was a name actually that the French gave them, um, but they have their own Thanksgiving address. And rather than being rooted in this particular day of the year, 
or um, these particular historical circumstances that have become so mythologized and misrepresented. Um, the Haudenosaunee uh, Thanksgiving Address uh, is something that can be given at any point in time. It's just a you know, general acknowledgement of our interconnectedness and how we you know, should kind of live our lives, right? So it begins, for instance, by uh, acknowledging and giving thanks to the people, right? Uh, we have gathered, um, we are able to gather, you know, that is good. Our minds are one. And then it goes to the earth mother and then the waters and fish um, and so on and so forth, the plants, right? So um, it's an address that is usually given at the beginning of a ceremony uh, just as a way to kind of get the attendees, the audience, the people thinking of like what brings us together, right? So even if it is a meeting that is going to be uh, the source of like a debate, um, before we get to that debate, let's first acknowledge what brings us together. Um, we are all here. Uh, you know, we all rely on the waters and the fish and the plants for sustenance. Um, our minds are one, right? That's kind of the recurring uh, chorus of the Thanksgiving address of the Haudenosaunee. And, um, you know, in my, I guess, like, my, my other culture, that's a weird way of putting it, but uh, as you put it, uh, BJ, I'm also Chamorro, um, the indigenous people of Guam, um, through both my mother and my father, and they have this idea of Inafamalek, uh, which is this idea of, like, restoring order and harmony. So it's a Thanksgiving uh, mentality a little bit, but it's mostly just about, like, you know, um, giving you a guidance on how to live your life, right? So there's a couple tenets that you are expected to abide by. Um, so, you know, there's a respectu, which is, you know, respect. Uh, manini, which is an expression of that respect that you give to elders and persons of authority. And uh, it is usually, it takes a form of, you know, when you see an elder, you walk up to them and you uh, place your face on the back of their hand for a second. Um, and that's it. And then there's also like, you know, chelu, which is like this relationship with siblings, this idea that you know, we are more than just, you know, brother and sister in this Western sense. Um, you know, we have to look out for each other. Uh, there is this uh, connection there beyond just this name of brother or sister. Um, so, yeah, I think um, I, I gave you, <laughs> I kind of maybe went off on a tangent there, but uh, Thanksgiving, very contentious, very complicated. Um, but there are these individual Thanksgiving addresses or concepts that a lot of indigenous people have that I think are um, truer to what they want to celebrate than, you know, the Western mainstream American Thanksgiving holiday. Yeah, it seems like we have a lot to learn um, and we can learn, or rather we can learn a lot from the idea of the interconnectedness, the re restoration of nature. There's mm -hmm. something that we can learn and whether or not we're heading in the wrong direction or whether or not we're heading in direction that's becoming more kind of, you know, um, so, you know, kind of, well, we've always been kind of commercial and very, it's always been the tradition of commercialism rather in the holiday mm -hmm. season rather than something of real connectedness. Um, but although some people try their best to practice against the rising tides of commercialism, let's say, you know, the rising tides of trying to create more merchandise, but at the same time, it's like, you know, there's different sides to that equation that we need to kind of navigate carefully so that then, on the one hand, you know, buying things, of course, helps put food on the table, but on the other hand, it's like we want to be mentally free of, like, the encumbrance of, like, 
you no. know, needing something. We want to be thankful for what we have, all this kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. it's very interesting to think about value based and what we can learn from the what can we learn from the values of the Native American tribes and the Native American indigenous people and what can we kind of adapt? What are some values that we can adapt? And you were mentioning a few of them, but like let's go a little deeper into like um, kind of like how does the value based system how do the values like I, mean, I don't want to say differ, but I don't know like in what ways have we what ways can we kind of you know, learn from them and grow from them as society, yeah. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I think you kind of uh, gave us a very interesting uh, term or turn of phrase there to kind of start that discussion, right? There's this conception um, that is very value-based, right? And things like capitalist, like monetary value mm. um, in a lot of the indigenous communities um, that I've, uh, that I'm a part of, that I've read about or studied as part of my work that I teach about. Um, in my capacity uh, as an English professor, um, the you know the emphasis is less on uh, is less on monetary value and more on kinship and community, right? Um, so I think that's definitely one of the things, uh, an essential truth that uh, maybe is undervalued in our society. That is maybe something we've gotten away from uh, the importance of community, of looking out for one another, and uh, emphasizing that over. Um, you know, turning a buck, you know, making some money. Um, and I don't know, I'm just trying to think, like, we grew up, a lot of us, with this, like, Western capitalistic view um, that emphasizes, like, individual achievement, right? Monetary gain. Um, and, you know, I guess, like, related to that is this idea that, you know, if you do not make money, if you do not succeed or have these achievements, it's, it's in some ways your fault, right? You didn't work hard enough. You didn't want it bad enough, right? We hang on to this Horatio, Horatio Alger's like mythology of like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, um, and if you can't do it, well, that's on you in some way. Um, so I think that um, you know we get away. We need to get away from that value based, that um, capitalistic way of looking at things and approaching things. And we should maybe emphasize, as you put it, BJ, connection, um, community, balance. Um, you know, this idea that uh, rather than competing against each other for, um, you know, these resources that are inherently finite, right, because that's what capitalism is, right, it's just getting us to think that, you know, everything is, um, you know, limited. If somebody gets a job, that means you don't get that job. If somebody buys that house, that means you don't get that house, right, and it's, it's designed very much to incur these feelings of, like, resentment. Uh, and to fuel this like competitive spirit that capitalism needs, right, in order to um, proliferate. Um, but what we need to do is uh, we're more, you know, we need to realize that we're more uh, related, right, than this way of thinking that's on or wants us to realize. So uh, I'm trying to think of like some, like, you know, ways that my own cultures that deal with this. In Seneca, as my students and I discuss uh, early on in the semester when we read the Iroquois creation story. Uh, there is this word, and I'm probably going to butcher it because I have a very colonized or colonial tongue still. Um, but it's uh, aguadeno, aguadeno. Um, for Chamorros, it, it, you know, the indigenous people, Guam, as I said, uh, the phrase there is like parentis. Uh, and both of those uh, phrases, again, that I probably butchered, uh, meaning simply that we are all related, right? Um, so Aguadenoc is the Seneca version and Parentis is the Chamorro version. Um, and I mentioned already in Afamalek this idea that, um, you know, it's our responsibility 
uh, not a burden, but it's our responsibility to one another, to our children, to our children's children, etc., to our ancestors, um, that we restore balance, um, that we live with respect toward one another, toward ourselves, toward you know the natural world, um, you know, and and I think that's uh, definitely something that should be championed maybe more than it is. I think the pandemic maybe got us to think a little bit more deliberately about how we are connected, right? Um, but, you know, that should be uh, just the start. Yeah, yeah. And one other thing I want to talk a little bit about is the idea of empowerment and the idea of kind of emboldening or kind of creating this uh, power within our communities. I think that's something that's been uh, dialogue on this show for a long time. But I want to get your take on it. You know, when we when we discover these truths, such as the ones you mentioned about community and about interconnectedness, we want to just do more than just intellectually discuss them. We want to really have it empower us and and make us take action within this world, so that then we we're kind of enshrined in that. Really coming from a place of community. Really coming from a place of generally acting from that value base so being empowered in that sense means that's what that means to me it means really genuinely acting from a place of knowledge mm -hmm. as opposed to intellectual understanding so um tell us a little bit about how in your own life uh some of these things have really helped embolden you or really helped you know take strides in your maybe in your class classroom how you're able to teach your students and kind of reinforce in yourself these values you know yeah, definitely. I think there definitely is this responsibility, um, you know, that we have as writers, uh, as teachers, as human beings, uh, to empower one another, to help one another realize the power of our voices, our actions, our truths, plural. Um, so uh, I was thinking of this assignment I give in my Native American Indigenous Literatures class, uh, where students, I mean, this was pre-pandemic, uh, so, you know, I'm still figuring out how I can do this in this uh, you know, lockdown world we currently inhabit. Uh, but I would have students uh, do something called a site visit report, where they would attend an event um, either being promoted and sponsored by the American Indian Community House, uh, that organization I mentioned earlier, um, or something that was uh, being uh, held at the uh, National Museum of the American Indian. So that was their opportunity to take what we were doing in class, this, you know, very narrow but intimate community learning environment and seeing how it connects to things that go on outside of the world right because that's what we want to do as college instructors is realize that yes we have 15 weeks together we're going to cover some cool stuff that might be subjective to call it cool um, but we're going to cover some cool stuff um, but it connects to things that are going on outside of our classroom outside of the university um, and i think it's especially important to do that if you to do that type of work if you work at a community college uh, like I do, um, like some of the previous guests do. I know uh, last time you had a Richard Jeffrey Newman on, another community college professor. Um, you should want to forge these relationships um, to other organizations within that community you serve. So Borough of Manhattan Community College is in Tribeca. Um, so American Indian Community House is in Chinatown, not too far away. The National Museum of the American Indian is like a 10-minute walk, you know, going south toward Battery Park. Um, you know, so what I want students to realize is there is this interconnectedness, yes, among us in the class, but also, you know, beyond that scope, like with other organizations in this like downtown Manhattan area. Um, so students, you know, see how these ideas and concepts that we discuss play out, but they also realize that 
and this is where the empowering part comes in, um, that they themselves are, you know, knowledge producers now, right? Because of our class, they have some background knowledge. They have something to contribute. When they go to an exhibit, uh, you know, they kind of know the nation or the uh, tribe that is being referenced. Uh, they have some sense. So when they see something from uh, an Anishinaabe artist, they'll be like, oh, Anishinaabe, just like Louise Erdrich, who we read in class, right? Mm. So um, I think that is where the power comes, is a lot of students don't think that, don't see themselves as knowledge producers. They think, and this might link back to their own learning experiences going from kindergarten to 12th grade, <clears throat> that the purpose of an education is to um, recite, right? Summarize. Um, but what I'm looking for, what a lot of college professors are looking for, is uh, your ability to you know, take what you know, make it your own in a way that is valuable to others. So I think that site visit report really empowers students to understand that they themselves can do that. It's not something they need to wait to do for when they're you know, grown up uh, or adults. It's like, oh no, you can do it now. And then you can just keep getting better at it, right? That's my goal. Um, I want you to be practicing these skills now at 18, 19, 20, so that when you're my age, you know, whatever the age that may be, 37, um, you're really good at it. You're much better at it than I am now at this stage of my life. Thank you, thank you. Um, so yeah, so as far as like um, reflecting on processes and experiences you've had in your life, why don't we talk a little bit about that and a little bit about how these, you know, you've kind of come equipped with a lot of these truths, but what are some experiences they reflect on that are watershed moments in your own process? Uh, yeah, very good question. So I didn't go to an MFA program. Um, so I, it's hard for me to talk too much about like process because I don't have a very, I guess, trained or refined way of looking at it. Uh, what I do is I try to make some time in, you know, every day to, you know, write something down, right? Even if it's um, even if it's just me reflecting on something that was already written, uh, you know, a day or so before, uh, so just kind of making it into a practice. Right? It's like the idea of like I guess, uh, you know, if you're training for a marathon, right, which might be a good analogy for writing a novel, or if you're, uh, you know, weightlifting, uh, you can't just like bench press once and then be like, all right, I'm all good. You have to kind of do it every day until you get to where you need to be. Um, so my process is, you know, probably a little bit. It's much more. Uh, not, I don't want to say rigid, but it's much more regular than it was when I was younger um, because I understand the importance of time and the importance of practice uh, more so than I did when I was, you know, a younger writer uh, when I thought I just kind of had all this natural talent and it would just flow from me, right? Uh, that I would be like Norman Mailer producing this uh, tome, this epic, this masterpiece at 23. Um, but yeah, I think... Um, what I've noticed when I look back at a lot of the stories and poems I've written recently, uh, something I keep returning to is my experiences as a parent. Uh, my son is on the autism spectrum. So one of the things I keep exploring, I'm realizing, is I'm trying to understand his way of looking at the world, right? Because it's not a disability. It is just an alternative approach to seeing things, right? And uh, I think it's really cool. And I think it's totally worth exploring. So when I review some poems I'm working on right now, I, I definitely see the influence of that, of these efforts of mine to understand him and how he interacts and engages the world. Um, I also, if, I, if it's something that is 
taking like a longer form. I'm currently working on a novella, for instance. Uh, I often reflect on my experiences growing up in a predominantly white town in upstate New York, um, what that was like, um, how that maybe impacted my own sense of uh, being, my own sense of identity, of empowerment, right? Because I think with about some of my experiences, what came up a lot was a feeling of disempowerment, of, you know, being something else, uh, or like, you know, tokenization, right? Being tokenized, like, oh, you're Native American, cool. Um, so is my grandma, she's a Cherokee princess, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like we all, we, some, a lot of uh, Native indigenous people might have had similar conversations. So, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, when I reflect on my childhood, some, you know, landmark events, watershed moments, um, that I kind of return to are like these weird interactions, uh, you know, or conversations I had where I could sense something was off with how people were talking to me. And I could even maybe articulate why that was, but you know, it was not, you know, too overt. It wasn't just, uh, it wasn't too out in the open. It was a much more discreet. So, um, I find myself often trying to make sense of those conversations, even now, like a decade a decade plus later, um, so yeah, I think that's those are some, you know some things I return to in my fiction, um, in my poetry. I'm definitely exploring my son's way of you know interacting with the world, um, and you know trying to learn from it because I think that's really what I can do as his parent is like understand that I can learn from him, and uh, that will help me, you know I don't want to say guide him, but help me kind of be on this journey with him uh, to adulthood. Yeah, so interesting, so interesting. Thank you, thank you. Um, so as far as like, uh, you know, one of the questions in the pre-interview questions about success and failures and you know, this kind of thing, reflecting on that, kind of that binary about, you know, we tend to sometimes, you know, to, to push towards being like, it's either a success or a failure, but we understand everything's on a continuum. But at the same time, there's some peak, peak experiences where we're like, oh, that was a real success. or that was like, didn't work out. I learned from it. So reflecting a little bit about that, about what things you categorize as either a great success or a abysmal failure, <laughs> and why don't we pick one? Uh, why don't we start off with failures and then go into successes? And yeah, as we know, should, right? Get the yeah, get the bad thing out of the way. Yeah, yeah. always, always. Yeah. Um, so for me, there's been you know, well, there's been too many failures to count <laughs> on a everyday basis. I think there's like some small failure in some way, um, and that is no doubt related to like parenting, right? Uh, as a parent, uh, you know, whether your child is on the spectrum or not, you're going to kind of fail in some way. And you always have to take a moment to be like, oh, I could have done that better. I didn't need to handle it that way. I lost my cool for a second. Um, professionally speaking, you know, there's been a couple, I guess, bigger failures. Failures that I think if I let them get the better of me, could have, you know, changed the trajectory of my life significantly. Um, so the first one is um, when I applied to MFA programs in my early 20s, um, I didn't get into any. Uh, that was a pretty big failure on my part. I was, at the time, living in my hometown in upstate New York. Um, I was trying to get down to New York City because I felt like I need to be in New York City to be a writer. Right? You, don't, you can't be a writer in Kennedy, which is foolish, I realize now. You can be a writer anywhere. Um, but I felt like I had to come to New York City, and I had to come to New York City um, as a graduate student in an MFA program. Um, so to, you know, strike out with every single school I applied to was a pretty, you know, at the time I felt like it was a huge failure. It hit me really hard. I took it as this 
um, you know, assessment on my value as a person, which again is a mark, I think, of my immaturity at the time. Um, but, you know, that was definitely, I think, the big first huge failure that I kind of had to deal with and make sense of in my own way. Uh, the second one came maybe like a few years later when I applied to doctoral programs. So I got my PhD eventually at Stony Brook University out in Long Island. Um, but that was, I only got into Stony Brook on my second year of applying. The first year I applied to doctoral programs, I applied to 10 schools and I went 0 for 10. And one of those 10 schools that rejected me that year was Stony Brook. So, you know, I, a little bit of stick-to-itiveness that never hurts anybody. Um, but I think the value of that failure, I can definitely speak to that one a little bit better, perhaps. The value of that failure was it made me reassess um, who I was at that time, what type of writer and scholar I was, and it helped me um, reflect on and articulate better what type of scholar I wanted to be. So the value of that particular failure was, you know, I came into the doctoral program a little bit on the older side. I started my PhD at 28. Um, at the time, most of my colleagues who were in the program were like mid-20s, early 20s, like 24, 25. Um, but I had a stronger sense of, you know, what I wanted to accomplish in this program. I had a stronger sense of, you know, where I wanted to go after this program. Like, I knew I wanted to be a community college professor, right? Um, whereas I think some of my younger colleagues who um, didn't have these struggles, didn't have these failures, were more at the whims of, you know, whatever the trendy buzzword or methodology was, uh, were more at the whims and uh, trends of, like, whatever professor they were studying under that semester, um, you know, because they, you know, were trying to just find themselves then and there during the program. Whereas I had already kind of done this proverbial legwork, you know, prior to my admission, um, because I got rejected the year before. Uh, so, you know, I think it benefited me because I wasn't constantly trying to fit into someone else's idea of, you know, what was marketable, <clears throat> what was trendy, what I should be doing or writing about. Um, I already had a strong idea of who I was and how I could be. Good, good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so now we can go into successes, I guess. Okay. You a moment. Yeah, I'll give you a moment to regroup. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I mean, successes. Uh, I mean, I have a job in academia. You know, yeah. that's a huge success. Um, yeah. I'm able to uh, afford a co-op in Queens. That's a pretty huge success. Uh, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, lower middle class. I was a free lunch kid in school which was awful, right? Because the only way to, if anyone who doesn't know, the only way to um, get your lunch is to uh, go up to the register with your tray and then you have to like give your name um, instead of like, you know, money. So you kind of out yourself every time you eat lunch that you're a free lunch kid. Um, you know, we were on food stamps for a little bit. So the fact that I can say, um, you know, I'm middle class. We have this nice co-op in Forest Hills. It's a pretty big deal to me. It's a pretty big success. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, having a job in academia is another huge one because I know a lot of people in from my program, from other programs, who undoubtedly, objectively speaking, were smarter than me. Uh, and, like there's just no going around it. Like I was in doctoral seminars with them. I know they were smarter than me. Um, but I think you know what maybe separated me from them um, beyond just you know the usual luck because there is some luck involved is I was able to articulate, you know, who I was, what I could do, what I was already doing in a way that maybe some other people were still trying to figure out on the fly. Um, I think those are some, a couple of huge successes. Getting my chapbook published a couple of years ago was a big deal for me. 
Um, I first heard the term chapbook in like I think 2008 or 9 and I was like oh that sounds so cool I want to get one of those it took me about a decade but uh you know even you know uh yeah it doesn't matter how circuitous the journey is as long as you get there um, so getting the chapbook out was a big deal for me as well um it was really cool for me to see that like physical object in the world um to do readings to promote it because i've never done um creative readings before all my readings and presentations have been more academic in nature uh, so that was really cool for me um, to do a reading at like Holmes House, for instance, um, you know, right off the river. It was like beautiful. And it was like this perfectly clear evening in January of all months. So I'm like, this is perfect. Um, so yeah, that was also a pretty big accomplishment for me. Yeah. And it's so interesting to listen to your story and think about like how we think about aging and thinking about how a couple of times you brought up how your people in your program were younger or, or whatever it is. And uh, it's interesting to think about how, you know, think about aging and think about getting older and then getting perspective. I mean, some people get older and they don't get perspective. So it's good just to get the perspective and whatever age you are to be able to get um, get to the point where you're like, oh, you know, I understand now a little better what my goals are and what my um, what my perspective is, what my what my truth is and, and really settle in on that and think about that and kind of let it empower you and all that kind of thing. So it seems like that story, like, even though, you know, there was that edge there that, you know, it felt like, you know, um, that you'd missed the boat at some level, but then at the same time, you know, at least you got, at least once you get there, it's like you're there and then you're, you're satisfied with that. So that's really good. And then thinking about um, how maybe perspectives that you held or hold, held or hold, are against the grain of your industry. Um, so one of the questions, our pre-interview questions is about how, what do you think about like how you hold a perspective that maybe people challenge a lot or people are like, oh, that's kind of strange or unusual within this, within community college uh, uh, professorship or within writing or any, or any of those mm -hmm. uh, various identity things you hold, yeah, various empty circles you hold, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, I have a few, I guess, opinions that are unpopular. I guess I'm just such a provocateur. <laughs> <to> realize. <laughs> um, so, uh, when it comes to writing, uh, and I mentioned this earlier, I think uh, an opinion I have that is maybe unpopular to some is I don't wait for inspiration. I sit down and I write uh, no matter, uh, you know, what, no matter how I'm feeling. Uh, I know that, again, because I'm a parent, perhaps that I only have X amount of time to do all the things I need to do or want to do. Um, so I need to make use of that time. And if it's me, and if that time happens when I'm tired and I'm not feeling inspired, we'll talk. You know, I want to get something down on paper because that's what I'm passionate about. Um, so this idea that, you know, writing every day, I know it's like this thing you see maybe on like those inspirational poster boards if you go to like an English department. Um, but like, you know, as I said before, as a younger person, and this isn't just me, but a lot of my friends and colleagues at the time, writer friends, uh, you know, you didn't think you had to. You're like, oh, well, I haven't written in a couple weeks, but it'll come. It's like, yeah, maybe it won't, right? You need to kind of keep working out that muscle. Um, so that is, I don't want, maybe that's not so much an unpopular opinion, but just like a hard truth I've had to kind of learn over years and years of, you know, insisting, you know, on the other way uh, of doing things. Uh, I guess as a college professor, um, an opinion or a practice I have that is that always becomes a source of discussion, I'll say, is um, I don't penalize for late work. I never have. During this pandemic, I definitely don't. 
Um, I email students when they don't submit an assignment saying, hey, listen, I noticed you didn't submit this assignment. I hope everything's okay. Um, and if you're up for it, um, I would like you to still submit the assignment for full credit. You know, and I make sure to emphasize full credit so students don't think they're being penalized for submitting late work. Um, and I do that because I understand that, you know, life happens, um, you know, even before the pandemic. Uh, you know, a lot of my students at the community college were juggling responsibilities um, with their families. Uh, they had full-time jobs. Um, you know, they had a lot else going on besides my uh, English class, whatever it was that I, you know, they were in with me. Um, so, you know, things can get complicated with them uh, very quickly in their lives. And I'm not going to be like, oh, on top of that, you also missed 15% of your final grade because you didn't submit this essay on time. Um, that's just not my style. So I think, um, you know, we have a responsibility as professors, as teachers, um, you know, to show students like every semester, right? Every semester with new students, we have this opportunity to show them that, you know, college education, a graduate college, uh, graduate degree, um, you know, can actually make you kind, right? Uh, because some students, for whatever reason, kind of come into college afraid of you. So you need to demystify that. You need to let them know that, you know, I'm actually just another human being, another person. I'm here to help you. That blows their minds for whatever reason. Um, and also like, you know, I'm going to err on the side of forgiveness and kindness. I want to help you get as much credit as possible for the course. I don't care if you submit the essay a week late. Um, I'm sure you had something going on that prohibited you from doing so. Um, I want to work with you, right? Um, so whenever I say that in a you know professional development or a pedagogy talk, uh, inevitably there is a colleague or, um, you know, yeah, yeah, a colleague, usually a senior colleague. I don't want to make it generational, but usually a senior colleague. Yeah, uh, usually a senior, senior colleague who, uh, you know, really <laughs> detests that or has strong opinions about, you know, why I should do the exact opposite of that. Um, so that always becomes a fun conversation that I anticipate but I kind of also dread having at the same time, like, you know, having to validate uh, this policy I have to accept student late work. It just seems like the kind thing to do, especially now. No, totally, totally. It's really good. I think it's like a compassionate way to approach uh, academia, you know, as opposed to like just, uh, you know, kind of by the book or by the so-called rules and all right, that right. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So that's good, and I think it's really good that you, it takes a lot of personal courage to be like, you know, I'm gonna take a stand on that and all this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah so it's really good. Um, also, we're gonna get a chance to read, listen to a little bit of your writing, so uh, we, we can get a chance to set us up for maybe a sample from your work and then uh, tell us a little bit about where it's coming from and all this kind of thing. We discuss your writing in the second half. Thank you. Oh, I have a few quick announcements afterwards. I, while you're while you're um, while you're setting yourself up, I'll do a couple quick announcements. So this is Ready for Brooklyn, um, the Truth to Power show. Uh, Ready for Brooklyn is a five hundred one c three nonprofit organization, and we're, you know Giving Tuesday is coming up. So um, if you'd like to donate, um, please uh, please donate to Ready for Brooklyn. You know it helps us stay in the air. Um, you know, we really appreciate it if you could go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. There's also lots of ways in which you can um, kind of give back to if you enjoy this program and, 
you know, just listening in, uh, downloading the apps on your iPhone or Android will be very helpful. So try to do that. Try to give support, give love. You know, like Ready for Brooklyn on Facebook, follow us, go to the newsletter, all this kind of stuff. So definitely try to look into that. Um, but you all we here, Francisco Delgado and Micah Zevin. Francisco is our featured guest. Micah is acting as co-host. And we're talking a little bit about uh, Francisco's writing. Um, so why don't we go into a sample of your writing, Francisco? Yeah, thank you. Great, thank you. Uh, thank you again. This conversation was a great way to start the week. It was a lot of fun. Um, so the first uh, work I'll read is a short poem. Um, it's very much about uh, what I was talking about earlier, you know, um, being with my son, trying to understand how he engages the world. Um, so uh, this poem is called Detours. It's a popular joke that New York City streets are endlessly under construction. It's a family joke how much my son loves car rides and Disney Pandora and sizing up high rises where there was only sky a couple years back. How strange it is, I think, to build with glass and steel, to build with flesh and bone, with words. How strange it is for a city whose infrastructure constantly consumes itself and rebuilds. My son, who eats leaves and crawls on the floor at school, knows every word to every song that plays, and, despite his speech delays, can teach us all a word or two to help us sing along with him. Like a New York City road, I too am always under repair, but getting there. Even detours lead us home. Thank you, thank you. So mm -hmm. beautiful to think about uh, us being like a, I, I've seen that idea that we're like the uh, BQE, always keep working on ourselves, you know? Yeah. It's sure. really great, it's really beautiful a sentiment. The way you express it is very beautiful, kind of a way of expressing ourselves, or kind of working ourselves rather, uh, always working on ourselves, thank you. Mm -hmm. so yeah, it was partially inspired by um, going from Union Turnpike onto Queens Boulevard, that you know, it's like, you know, it's shaped like the horn of a trumpet. Uh, just uh, these ways that go to nowhere that are constantly being worked on. And God knows when they'll be done, you know? Yeah. Oh, um, so, uh, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, the next will be just like the first uh, couple pages of my novella um, mm -hmm. that I'm currently, that I finished and I'm currently, I'm submitting to publishers. It's called The Other Brown Kid. Uh, this is uh, the first couple pages of it. Cody Titano only saw himself on certain types of television shows, professional wrestling shows as the Cannibal Islander or the Smiling Cabana Boy, or on shows about cops or hospitals, where folks with his brown skin, crooked teeth, and sales rack clothing were being tossed into prison cells or onto ER tables, bleeding from their torsos or faces or bursting from within, Near plot devices to advance the tension love story between the handsome white doctor detective and the beautiful, vaguely ethnic nurse or lawyer. Cody had a hard time seeing anything after gym class, though. During passing drills, he caught a punch to the face from Brian, all six foot three, 210 pounds of him, who had the musculature and facial hair of one of those 30 year old actors who play a high schooler in a movie. Easy, Brian. It's his birthday today. List Pete, 
We must have remembered this from elementary school when they shared a class birthday cake because they were born in the same month. Dude, it's your birthday? Brian snickered. Cody's eyes were still clasped shut and watering. He was starting to worry that something was permanently damaged with them, that this was his new reality. He blinked, then again, and when he could finally see, all he saw was Brian's smirk. Brian and his friends laughed and ran circles around him, all of them, including Dominic Hopkins, the other brown kid at their school. Sometimes Cody thought about Dominic as a bizarro world version of himself, who he could have been had he been a little richer, with better clothes and straighter teeth, with higher grades and an imminent sports scholarship. Cody thought about what it'd be like if he and Dominic were friends. He remembered all their past conversations, all of which were brief, and wondered what about them could have gone a little bit differently. Pete was laughing too, loudest of all. Brian and his friends liked Pete because he tried so hard to get in with them. At his worst, Cody relished the idea of breaking it to Pete that he never would. That much was made clear each time the rest of them talked about some party they all went to, and Pete, hanging on their every word, had to just make do with what little details he was given. But who was Cody, he thought, with his reddening eyes and with, with his reddening face and watery eyes to judge Pete? Who was Cody to judge anyone? His, his vision started to clear. Brian and his friends um, serenaded him with a rendition of Happy Birthday that some of the other boys in class joined in on. It was all spectacle, Cody, the unwitting star. By the time that his class ended, he cared less and less about how his eye looked. He doubted anyone, except maybe his family, would even notice because of how little attention people gave him anyway. And so, he was thrust into the next routine horror, getting changed in front of boys constantly sizing each other up, having to angle his body this way and that on his way to his locker, which was being blocked by a group of underclassmen cheerleaders and their football-playing boyfriends, all of whom totally knew what he was trying to do. Is it worse, he thought, to be bullied or ignored? After school, he watched TRL and fantasized about dating a girl who looked like Christina Aguilera, but didn't know she looked like Christina Aguilera because then she'd dump him or having four other friends with whom he could synchronize dance. Four friends that could back him up in a fight, even if they were going to lose. Happy birthday, Cody, he said to himself, alone in his living room, on the other end of the state as Times Square. You beautiful, brown, son of a... And I'll end it there. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So beautiful, and it makes me think a little bit about um kind of growing up uh, ethnic or growing up kind of, you know, in, in, a, in a society that kind of, you know, maybe has that eye towards looking at you and kind of the way we perceive ourselves, the way we perceive our culture, you know, the way we perceive kind of our identity um, and the ways in which we relate with others in, regard, in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like, you know, um, how we choose to present ourselves and how we choose to think about our culture and whether or not we adapt to the circumstance, adapt to the dominant culture, whether or not we really retain that mm -hmm. sense of identity and how we navigate that balance between, uh, you know, kind of seeing ourselves as being part of uh, the, the culture of our parents and the culture of our ancestors and how we kind of navigate that. So tell us a little bit more about how you've been able to navigate that 
and how let's get a little bit into that and then we can kind of start to you know um wind down yeah thank you yeah, sure so um for me it was a very weird and um complex process um uh, so i mentioned before i grew up in a place where not a lot of people looked like me um at the time television shows didn't have a lot of people who looked like me that's kind of the opening from that novella i just read from um and there wasn't much in the way of guidance about how i could behave or how i should respond to these types of occurrences um you know family members who i could have and maybe once or twice did turn to um they didn't have much in the way of advice other than, oh, well, just stand up for yourself. It's like, oh, well, if there's a group of guys being hard on me, the last thing I want to do is be like, you know, standing up for myself in a way that could be construed as aggressive, which would just result in me getting beat up, right? <laughs> so it's like, I, it was, very, you know, the process was very um, fraught for me because I don't want to say I had to figure it out on my own because I did have my best friend um, who was, uh, you know, who was African-American and, you know, we were kind of dealing with a lot of the same issues. Um, so we kind of helped each other out as best we could. But, you know, if you're two 15-year-old boys, I have news for you. You're not much help to, you know, anyone as a 15-year-old boy. Uh, you think you are, right? But you're not. Um, but we did what we could. You know, we helped each other out. We always had each other's backs. Um, you know, and sometimes that, that mostly just took the form of, you know, just speaking up for one another and, uh, you know, standing side by side with each other when, you know, these types of conversations or occurrences would you know, um, play out. Uh, but yeah, beyond that, it was, you know, very weird because there wasn't much in the way of models at the time. Um, I didn't have any, as I said, anyone around me who really looked like me beyond my family. And my the men in my family were mostly, uh, you know, maybe it's like this Islander machismo thing where it's like, oh, just stand up for yourself. I wouldn't put up with that. Like, ah, well, I kind of have to because he moved me to this predominantly white town in upstate New York. And, uh, you know, the option is getting punched in the face, which I'd like to avoid. If I could, right? That's not going to make the day any better, getting punched. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, it it was a, you know, it's hard for me to figure, I guess, it it just took time, right? Um, That's boring, long answers. It took time for me to figure out how um, to navigate these, uh, you know, conversations, these um, interactions. Um, It took the help of my friends. Um, I mentioned my best friend growing up. Also, my friends from college helped me a lot. Um, And it took, you know, literature and writing help me realize like my power right the fact that however these um interactions make me feel there is some you know something i can take from them to build myself up and that took a long time <laughs> to do right but uh, like any process that takes long i think it uh, was ultimately worth it yeah thank you thank you and also i think you mentioned sherman alexi as being someone uh-huh. a writer who really influenced you or really gave you something to ground you and like, oh, this is a writer who writes about these themes and I can kind of get something from that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know he's become a persona non grata recently, but um, yeah. when I first encountered his work in 04, it like blew my mind, right? It was the first time I'd seen people who looked like my family, who looked like me, who joked the way we joke, meaning kind of inappropriately, if you're an outsider. Um, and, you know, prior to this, I read, you know, canonical stuff, meaning, white male hetero uh, authors, right? Hemingway, Faulkner, uh, you know, Joyce, etc. So, you know, the first time I encountered Sherman Lexi, it, you know, it was a moment, to say the least. And then after that, you know, you just kind of keep reading other authors who do the same stuff, who, you know, 
and it's like realize, oh, there's this whole community of writers out there who are who have these same lived experiences and are exploring these same issues. It's like how cool is that? Yeah, thank you, thank you. And then um, so now I have a couple and a couple more quick announcements. Uh, it's really interesting to think about like, um, but I just want to quickly say it's really interesting about like writers and how they impact you, and then you know thinking about um, kind of how perception that maybe changes but we still kind of we, we were impacted by their writing and we got kind of hold that as being its own place you mm-hmm. know I mean, it's, we should honor that um, impact and, and honor that experience we had with their writing even if you know kind of there's been some uh, change in perception and all that kind of thing but anyway um, I just want to say uh, Ray from Brooklyn uh, if you live in, in New York City and want for either fun or exercise Here's a way to learn something about the neighborhoods you're running in. Uh, City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running uh, tours designated to locals in mind. New York City uh, takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods. And these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of the neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose from a tour of 23 neighborhoods including East Village, Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information on the neighborhoods and the running tours, See the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule and check out the website at cityrunningtours.com slash New York City. Um, and then finally, um, we have uh, sixth, 6th Annual 6th uh, Ecuadorian Film Festival in New York. The Ecuadorian Film Festival in New York is proud to announce its sixth season, running from December 1st through 6th. The year's, this year's festival will be offered online only. It is available to viewers across the U.S. and Ecuador at, at um, EFFNY.org. Do, three documentaries and two featured films will be complete, competing for the Best Film Award Jury Prize. Ecuadorian Film Festival attracts its audience both from Ecuadorian communities in the tri-state area and film fans and interest in Ecuadorian culture. The, film, the festival offers high-quality films that pr- provide a diverse outlook on this fascinating country, little known. In the U.S. to watch these series films, please go to eff.effny.org. So um, thank you, thank you, and then um, I think that's about it um, as far as announcement goes. So uh, we, I guess, we'll end the conversation kind of as the last five minutes, uh, five or six minutes, um, talking a little bit about you know the personal, political, and truth to power, kind of the major themes or the major kind of standby ideas of the show. Uh, kind of your take on them, and uh, we'll start with truth to power, and then we'll go into personal political. So, talking a little bit about what that means to you and how that resonates with you. A lot of people, the past guests, have talking about like how you know, rather than the traditional speaking truth to power, we talk a little bit about how we find our truth and let it empower us. The empowerment angle. So that's mm-hmm. definitely one angle to take. But then also, I think uh, you know, there's something to be said for you know speaking truth to power in the sense of like reminding our officials about these themes that we're talking about, reminding that we the people have the power. But I want to get your take on it, yeah. Yeah, uh, no, those are great takes. So um, yeah, definitely this idea of speaking truth to power um, is you know about empowerment, right? Um, mm-hmm. So first and foremost, when we speak truth to power, we are validating ourselves and our stories, I think. Um, you know, we are understanding that uh, however we may have felt at the time about certain experiences, 
um, there is something about them that we can take from them looking back, writing about them, um, that it can be empowering. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of, you know, any, any natural talent or skill I have as an instructor uh, arises or results from me reflecting on certain truths I have about, I had about myself as a learner. Like what, what did it take for me to learn successfully? What, it did, what did it take for me to successfully c complete my degrees, right? And I always try to uh, use that to help my students, right? So um, speaking truth to power for me is about like reflecting on what our truths, again, plural, truths are um, and how they can be used to help others, right? So sometimes that means, um, as you put it, BJ, um, trying to think of it, like advocating for ourselves and our communities um, to our you know, representatives, like speaking truth to power, um, promoting these truths, these realities that we fear might be getting, uh, I don't want to say erased, but maybe like not as recognized as they should be. Right. And, um, you know, on a personal level, that can be the same, you know, idea. Just like me exploring these uh, experiences uh, in a way that helps me uh, connect with other people, helps me, um, you know, connect with my students. Uh, that's really what's most important uh, for me right now at this juncture. Uh, helps me connect to my son, right? Um, so, yeah, this idea of speaking truth to power. <clears throat> Sorry. It's all about empowerment for me. Um, it's all about realizing our power. Um, as human beings, as fellow human beings, um, as storytellers, as writers, right? So um, one of the things that was always kind of weird for me to say was, like, I am a writer. I always felt like it was like a dirty, dark secret, like something I could be afraid of. Um, but that's part of my power, I think, is the fact that, you know, I am a writer. Um, you know, I am a storyteller. Uh, we are all storytellers in some way. Um, and um, we're stronger because we're storytellers. Uh, because we can articulate these truths and we can advocate for these truths and we can connect with others. Um, so yeah, I think that's what uh, truth to power means to me is just empowerment, but also like connection, community. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And also finally, um, you know, it's like when we talk about like the personal is political, it's like the personal mm -hmm. being like our personal choices. We think of, sometimes many people think about you know, this whole discussion around privacy and around, uh, you know, kind of like our private lives and these are, but also I think there's something somewhat disruptive about privacy because it's like, when we think about it just being about us, about me and my choices and my life, you know, separating ourselves almost from the whole and thinking like, oh, it's just kind of a private thing. I mean, there's, there's a place for privacy, but also there's a place for interconnectedness and realizing that all of our choices really are reflected in the choices of others and how there's so much of our lives, there's nothing that's unique. So many of the, even the most like strange or unusual thing you can think about yourself, probably, you know, many other people have, have experienced as well. And if you really dig deep, you'll be like, oh, the most unusual thing has been experienced by thousands and thousands of people or even more maybe. So thinking about that and thinking about how the personal book and how it resonates with you, yeah. Absolutely, yeah, no, so, um, you know, just speaking very uh, individually, for me the personal is political is figuring out like how these things that were once politicized and used against me can be used for my own strength, right? So, um, you know, I'm thinking for instance of like some of the experiences I had, I mentioned them earlier, uh, of racism growing up, right? And how that was like, you know, by, you know, if you just like took it at face value, it's like, oh, well, 
you know, maybe it was just a conversation. Maybe you're reading too much into it. Um, but like, no, there was like a political element um, to those conversations that I know exactly what was going on, right? Um, but rather than having that disempower me, realizing that like I can, you know, galvanize that, those experiences to empower myself and, you know, thus empower others. So for me, the personal is political just really highlights um, so much about ourselves, so much about our empowerment, like what power we have as people, as members of communities, as members of families. Um, it also highlights, you know, our agency, our ability to take what was maybe once used against us, right? And, um, you know, how we can contest that. So we started this conversation with Thanksgiving, right? This holiday that can be a reminder of some very painful uh, memories, right? For individuals, for families, for whole indigenous communities. Um, but from these conversations has, a, you know, has come about like these movements. Um, you know, that's what we have with like the whole Columbus Day thing, right? Like how, you know, to call it Columbus Day uh, is a little bit passe at this point, right? It's Indigenous People's Day. That took a lot of hard work and advocacy from many groups. Um, so that's, you know, kind of what the personal is political to me is realizing that, um, you know, we can become our own strength and we can find our strength in others and others can find their strength in us. And we can all stand in solidarity and work together, right? Thank you, thank you. So in our final few moments, um, why don't we go around and just tell us a little bit about how we can follow you, how we can find out more information about you, how we can kind of uh, get your work, your chapbook, and all this kind of thing, yeah. Oh, wonderful, yeah, no, thank you so much. Um, so the chapbook is available um, at honeysucklepress.com. Um, that is the chapbook publisher's website. Um, you could also follow me on Twitter, um, and my Twitter handle is at Delgado Kinata, D-E-L-G-A-D-O-Q-U-I-N-A-T-A. -A. Um, you know, so you can follow me for all my hot takes, my controversial hot takes on pedagogy, yeah. on writing. Uh, sometimes I tweet about professional wrestling because I never outgrew that. Uh, so, you know, a nice smorgasbord of topics for you right there. Um, and you're reminding me with that question, BJ, that I need to create an author website. Yeah. Yeah, I need to get on. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Good, good. Yeah. That was good to remind you. And I'll add if you do it. Uh, I'll try to add in your thing into the link Wonderful. so people will be able to uh, follow you and stuff like that. So uh, also, I guess finally, I'll just say, uh, Micah, you want to say a few words, or you want to just quickly tell people about your website too? Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah, you're on mute. I think yeah. So, are you, uh, uh, I think we're lost. Uh, is it? Yeah. Hmm. Oh dear. <laughs> oh, okay. So uh, thanks so much. Uh, this is. Oh wait, hang on. He's back. Oh. Shoot. <laughs> oh well. Uh, sorry about that. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Take.